singularity. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it and down- or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me produce more episodes of it in one out of two ways. You can simply go to iTunes and write a review for the show, which would help me greatly spread the word for it. But you can also go to my donations page and simply make a donation. So today, the guest on my show is uh, Dr. James Hughes. Uh, Dr. Hughes serves as the executive director of the uh, Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. He is also a bioethicist and a sociologist at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, where he teaches health policy and serves as director of institutional research and planning. He holds a doctorate in sociology from University of Chicago and is the author of uh, Citizen Cyborg, Why Democratic Societies Must Respond to the Redesigned Human of the Future. He's also working on a second forthcoming book, potentially titled Cyborg Buddha. So, uh, James, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Fantastic. So, perhaps uh, the best starting point for our conversation today would be to give us a, a brief idea about the Institute for Ethics and Emergent Technologies, what it deals with, what it is all about. We started six years ago as an uh, offshoot of the World Transhumanist Association. A number of the members of the board of directors wanted to start a more public policy think tank operation as opposed to the uh, more movement-oriented uh, WTA, which became Humanity Plus. And um, we also realized that uh, the transhumanist movement is so politically diverse in terms of you know, ranging from Putinists in Russia to uh, rabid right-wingers in some parts of the developing world to libertarian anarcho-capitalists and socialists, uh, you know, all kinds of folks in the in the global movement. So you sit down and you say, okay, what are we going to propose to governments about how to regulate human enhancement technologies? And right off the bat, you're in a mess of trouble because nobody can agree about anything. Um, <laughs> So we also had a certain set of shared presumptions that the existing institutions of regulatory safety uh, were necessary, could be strengthened, could be improved, uh, but that were, they were basically legitimate institutions, um, that we needed universal access to some of these technologies and that that would require some kind of public health system. Um, that uh, global governance would be required to mitigate some of the global risks that they posed. So we had uh, a bunch of those basic assumptions in common. And as we've gone on, we've tried to elaborate what that uh, those set of basic common assumptions were uh, as opposed to just a subset of transhumanism because transhumanism is really just a set of questions about human enhancement and the application of biotechnology to you know, using enlightenment values to regulate biotechnology in, in, in relation to the body and human enhancement. Um, and so we began to talk about our values as techno-progressive values, the notion that there's a broader approach to technology, science, and reason that comes out of the enlightenment 
um, and in particular the progressive wing of the Enlightenment as opposed to the anarcho-capitalist wing or some of the other wings. Um, and that uh, using those basic values, we could then approach questions like geoengineering, how we might be able to apply uh, emerging technologies to redress and mitigate the risks of global climate change, uh, uh, questions around uh, energy policy and a lot of other domains other than just human enhancement technologies. Um, and so we've got four basic uh, research programs. We've got a, a, a research program on how to support the longevity dividend, which is, um, th I think, the most popular techno-progressive or transhumanist agenda item, which is how to advance anti-aging medicine. But in particular, we want to argue to policymakers that there are enormous public policy advantages if we can redress the uh, the costs and the disabilities associated with aging, because most public policy folks around the world see uh, the growing uh, longevity of their populations as a threat as opposed to a benefit. Yeah. Um, we have a program on um, uh, the rights of uh, persons which is both, uh, it's kind of a catch-all because it's the rights to control your own body, your own reproduction, cognitive enhancement, uh, cognitive liberty. But also we're uh, having a conference uh, this coming spring on the rights of non-human persons because we think that there's a, an enormous opportunity and necessity to um, address the rights of personhood as opposed to the rights of humans and human rights um, so that we uh, can move into a transhuman era in which people won't just be per, uh, humans anymore. Um, we have a program on popular culture, which we've done conferences on, and um, we are trying to engage with culture creators and, uh, and culture critics to mitigate some of the um, negative stereotyping that we see of human enhancement and the future technologies in a lot of popular culture, a lot of uh, kind of uh, ham-handed uh, Luddite uh, attitudes expressed in those fora. And then we have a program on global ca catastrophic risks, uh, which we have worked on topics like geoengineering, uh, but also the mitigation of um, uh, weapons of mass destruction, uh, and other kinds of, uh, of issues. Um, we're not as engaged with uh, directly with the singularity issues, although we've addressed them peripherally because mm -hmm. we prefer to see them in, in this bro broader context of the other catastrophic risks that humanity faces. Yeah. So, then we have a sub-project on um, the Cyborg Buddha Project, which uh, is what my book is about, which is the use of neurotechnologies to enhance spiritual um, practice and moral behavior. Um, and that's been very exciting. We had a conference at NYU in the spring of last year about moral enhancement, which is uh, really exploding as a, as a topic within transhumanist ethics. Those are all fan fantastic topics, and, and I would come back to many of them. But uh, uh, before that, let me just mention that I've already interviewed uh, at least two other people uh, associated with the Institute of Ethics and Emergent Technologies off the top of my head, and there may be more, actually. At least one is George Dvorsky and also Dr. Uh, Linda McDonald-Glenn. Mm -hmm. And I already have an interview booked with uh, Jamey Cassio. Oh, excellent. Uh, so um, there's quite a few folks here who are going to be put in the spotlight. <laughs> uh, but let me press you on one very interesting issue here, which um, I'm trying to figure out, and, and you sort of preempted it, but I, I, I 
challenge you to go a little bit deeper. Uh, you said one of the goals is to sort of impact or influence policy. Uh, and you also mentioned that uh, there's a very wide spectrum of, of uh, you know, political or economic ideologies of people who associate with uh, transhumanism. So uh, just to limit it to sort of the North American context, I mean, there is, you know, the sort of uh, radical libertarians like, for example, Max Moore, very notably. And then there's you, on the other hand, who is expressed very open uh, sort of socialist left-leaning, uh, you know, inclinations. So how do you impact on policy or, uh, coming from those almost uh, mutually exclusive points of view? And can you? Well, this was uh, one of the challenges when I was executive director of the World Transhumanist Association. Um, I had what I thought was a fairly sophisticated n-dimensional analysis of politics, which allowed me to work with people like Ron Bailey, the um, libertarian writer from Reason Magazine, um, and and potentially with Max Moore or Peter Thiel or any of the other libertarians out there uh, around the issues that we shared in common. And within the WTA, that had to be a very, very small um, uh, set of common assumptions that uh, people had a right to cognitive enhancement, uh, uh, biological enhancement, and, and control their own reproduction. Um, and, and then once you got beyond that, it got very complicated. But we, we could agree about those basic kinds of things. So you, if we could all agree, I'm sure, about marijuana legalization, for instance, that it was uh, you know, not legitimate right of the government to lock people up for hundreds of years on the basis of that. So there are some things that uh, people on the left and people on the libertarian end of the spectrum can agree about and work together on. Um, unfortunately, within the context of the WTA, it never really worked very well to try to do that. Um, and so the, the IET has been a much more um, a successful venture around that because we have a lot more ideological agreement. Um, uh, what else I would say is I think it's probably a natural maturation of our movement that we develop uh, these explicit um, strands. And I think it's to Max Moore's credit. Max, but by the way, doesn't really call himself a libertarian anymore. He, he thinks his views have evolved, and, and uh, I'll grant him credit for that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm more focused on people um, – like Peter Thiel, who, because of his enormous wealth, uh, his yeah. uh, philanthropy and his uh, markedly right-wing uh, political engagements, really does wield a disproportionate and quite out-of-step uh, political influence within transhumanism. And I think it's all to our credit that we begin to name and uh, consciously recognize and organize around these differences because um, uh, trying to work together and pretend that there are no differences between us really doesn't serve anybody. Yeah, I agree. Um, so before we jump into some of the sort of a meat, meat of the matter here, I want to sort of roll back the tape and go back earlier in your childhood <laughs> and ask you, you know, it doesn't happen too often that you see people with interests both in technology and in ethics especially. So how did it come to be and why? Well, I may be a product of uh, parental uh, synthesis, the, the, the two vectors of my parents. So I could start there. My mother was a, a healthcare lobbyist. She lobbied on behalf of um, 
people with mental illness and children with uh, learning disabilities and um, was very passionately engaged in those issues. And she got engaged because my brother and I were diagnosed as having ADD when we were very young and were put on uh, stimulant medication. And so from a very early age, we were uh, engaged in the politics around cognitive enhancement, uh, stimulant medication, ADD diagnosis, and so on. Um, and, and that, I think, strongly shaped my views. My father was an insurance executive. Uh, but also passionately engaged in questions of universal insurance, uh, health insurance in the United States. Um, he wanted to put himself out of business, basically. And uh, also the right to die. My father was a passionate advocate of uh, the right to die. And um, uh, so both of my parents were very politically engaged in their own ways. And um, the other thing that happened was that my father was interested in risk uh, assessment and uh, futurism from uh, early uh, because of insurance. And uh, we got a subscription to the Futurist magazine when I was about 13, which I found fascinating. And then also I was a passionate science fiction consumer. So all of that added up. Um, uh, eventually to my uh, belief that that futurism and uh, people concerned about um, emerging technologies and so forth had to be interested in ethics and policy and, uh, and vice versa. Um, the other thing that happened was that I became a Buddhist when I was in high school. And when I um, went overseas, I worked for two years in Sri Lanka for a Buddhist development organization and then uh, tried to wrap my mind around becoming a Buddhist scholar in Japan for a while. And eventually my father called and asked if I could find out how many uh, heart, lung and kidney transplants were being done in Japan. And it turned out that Japan was not yet, uh, had not yet adopted a brain death standard of death. They still had the heart standard of death. And that got me fascinated in the questions of bioethics. Um, and so when I got back to graduate school in the late 80s at in the University of Chicago, um, I was engaged politically on the left around green politics and began to realize that I was out of step with a lot of people in progressive politics because I was so much more techno-optimistic than they were. Mm -hmm. um, and I was engaged uh, academically in the study of bioethics and began to realize that I was out of step with a lot of bioethicists, uh, among whom the joke was you only needed to know one word, which was the word no, because every, <laughs> every technology that was, that was proposed was is bad, uh, is bad yeah. for one reason or another. And I certainly didn't believe that. So um, what happened was that in both my political engagements and my academic engagements, I quickly realized that I was something different. And that was just when the internet was getting going and I met uh, online, I met the Extropians and Max Moore and all of that was very happy for about 10 minutes until we started to talk about politics. <laughs> um, and then I realized that I didn't have a home there either. So uh, it took a, a long time to quite a, to kind of figure it out that I was one of these lost strands of the Enlightenment. But by starting my own radio show and uh, writing a book and then getting involved with the WTA, eventually I, I began to put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Uh, so uh, would you say that uh, your starting point of view is sort of bringing ethics into technology or is it the other way around, bringing sort of technology into the, the realm of ethics and philosophy and sociology and so on? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I don't see it as the insertion of one end to the other. I, I kind of see the world as a bunch of overlapping circles. And I'm, what has always fascinated me is to work at the interstices of these circles. You know, what's the intersection of Buddhism and, and left politics? Or what's the intersection of transhumanism and Buddhism? Those kinds of questions. Um, I think uh, normative questions. We've actually recently had a debate on, uh, we run the techno-progressive list on Yahoo, which is for the explicit discussion of techno-progressive politics. And uh, recently, one of the members of that list was involved in the organizing of the um, Atheist Plus, uh, you know, borrowing from the Humanity Plus, and to say that atheists need to clean up their act politically. Um, and those, we started to argue about Sam Harris's proposition that um, that ethics could be empirically validated. You know what we call the naturalistic fallacy in, in philosophy: the notion that um, uh, that you can go from is to ought. Um, and I have one of the reasons I got attracted to Buddhism when I was a teenager was that I came to that conclusion early on when I was 15 that you can't do that, and that that leaves you in this enormous void of certainty. Uh, which can be for many people uh, terrifying and lead them to go back to fundamentalism or into mindless hedonism. For me, it, it got me attracted to Buddhism because Buddhism said you could still believe that you make up those kinds of things about the world, that there are rights and wrongs, but you can still do it and it can still work. Um, and I think so. I think we make those things up. Um, so it's not that I'm trying to bring – so that, this is an answer to your question about bringing ethics into technology or vice versa. Mm -hmm. I think we make up our ethics. I think uh, you it's a leap of faith that uh, certain things are better or worse than others morally. Um, uh, but most of us seem to make have the same intuitions about these things. So on that, that basis, I think we can move forward and say the kind of world that we want – looks a lot more like Sweden than Somalia. Mm -hmm. And uh, and therefore, that can lead us to certain conclusions. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating to me because another thing which is sort of, which we have a common interest on uh, is is the fact that I'm, I've also been very interested in Buddhism for a while. Uh, and I mean, I've, I've never gotten to the levels that you have. But uh, I was wondering if you, I am also uh, sort of, an, a militant atheist, if I can put put it that way, but if there's one single religion which I feel sort of intuitive attraction to, that's that's Buddhism. I just find it absolutely fascinating, very refreshing, like a lot of fun, uh, and I, I just really enjoy it. But would you care to say a little more about how is it or why is it that I keep finding people who are interested in transhumanism and, and Buddhism at the same time. What, what's your take on that? Well, within Western Buddhism, there is this um, rationalist, uh, what we call atheist strain of Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism is, in its origins, not really a theist religion because the Buddha was a human being and uh, who achieved enlightenment and you know the gods begged him to preach to them and not vice versa. Um, so uh, Buddhism's never been the same kind of theism as Judeo-Christian or Islamic religion. Um, uh, but even within that, you, there are strong strains of rationalism and, uh, and, and an antinomianism or um, eclecticism that you know, rejects dogmas and superstitions. And so you, when you get to Zen and some of these kinds of traditions and the meditation traditions that have come to the West, um, 
you can really validate uh, a rationalist position through those. Um, although, you know, not everybody agrees. Uh, John Horgan, for instance, a prominent technology writer, has is a, a has excoriated us rationalist Buddhists for ignoring the irrationalist or supernatural elements of Buddhism. Whatever, I don't really care anymore if people will think I'm a true Buddhist. I don't believe in reincarnation. I'm, I throw out everything that doesn't accord with reason, and I find a, there's a heck of a lot left that works for me. So, um, what I say about the rest is that it kind of works at a mythopoetic level, and I think one of the attractions for transhumanists is that mythopoetically, the notion of uh, human beings achieving through their own hard work and aspiration, um, supernatural abilities, healing, the ability to fly around on moon disks and, and live in heavenly realms and have lifespans of hundreds of thousands of years, that's all a part of the mythopoetics of Buddhism and Hinduism. And so for that reason, Buddhism has another layer of attraction for transhumanists, not just the rationalists, but this notion of human transcendence. Um, being a, a central part of, through our own efforts, being a central part of the myth. Mm -hmm. So uh, perhaps now is the time for me to ask you to share a little bit more without sort of uh, stealing your thunder and telling us everything, of course, about your upcoming book, Cyborg Buddha. Well, in, in the first book, uh, Citizen Cyborg, I laid out a kind of fundamental ethical starting point premise, which, as I said, I, I don't think that you can find this written in stone at the base of the universe. But um, the premise was, if you think that uh, human happiness is a good thing and that more human happiness is a good thing, and you believe that people having more control over their lives and their societies uh, leads to more human happiness, then here's the propositions that I would see flowing from that in terms of how to build a, a progressive transhumanist movement, a progressive transhumanist politics. Um, and uh, that is a pretty simple-minded, I'm very influenced by John Stuart Mill in that, and, and uh, argued for Mill's position around human freedom and human choice in, in that in that book. Um, but then I started to teach a course here at Trinity on uh, uh, happiness and public policy. And this over the last decade, the literature on ha human happiness and in particular its application to public policy has been exploding. And I began to realize that um, the naivete of my own utilitarianism um, and the difficulty of, of uh, especially for a transhumanist, of trying to um, have human happiness as a goal, because eventually we're all going to have wires and, and little nano pharmacies in our brains that will be able to give us any mood or experience we want. And you could be lying in the gutter and, you know, land of the lotus eaters and, and be perfectly happy. So from a transhumanist point of view, it's extremely problematic because of wireheading. Um, and uh, I know that uh, David Pierce and I have a bit of a disagreement about this, uh, about the hedonistic imperative here about that. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I do think that there is a way to have a kind of sophisticated goal of, of happiness. So the beginning point of the book is to try to tease back apart this question of what kinds of happiness 
are true kinds of happiness that would be legitimate aspirations for our society in the era of neurotechnology. Um, and w what do we know about human happiness? And it basically boils back down to the distinction between hedonism and eudaimonia. So we, Aristotle had this notion that there was a kind of happiness which comes from actual accomplishment and the maturation of, of human character um, that is different from simply wireheading or taking crack. And, um, and that that is, I think, what we need to recognize is the only possible way to have uh, uh, go goals individually or societally in the kind of future that we imagine is going to be created. Um, so I make that argument for a eudaimonic uh, view of happiness, and that then turns to, well, what are those aspects of human character that we want to develop? And so that g returns to a question of virtue and the, what are the virtues. Um, I then try to develop, a, a, which is already happening all over the place, but a, a kind of a psychologically and neurologically grounded model of human virtue, um, the importance of self-control, the importance of empathy, uh, what the uh, uh, neurochemicals are, what the drugs are, what the neural structures are that go into the development or the support of these different kinds of human capabilities, and, and look at it from a sociological point of view and say, you know, again, I'm not trying to argue that virtue in and of itself uh, is self-evidently good. But almost all of us recognize that our ability to control our own behavior uh, furthers our own goals. And, um, and so there are, there's a kind of self-validating nature to a lot of these things. Uh, other questions, I mean, like our uh, fellow Andrea Kajushi, she's written some great stuff about uh, courage and excessive courage, being stupid. So there's a lot, a lot, you know, there's a lot of things to in, when you interrogate virtue ethics, and, which has been going on for thousands of years, that um, the need for balance between virtues, that you can't just be compassionate without reason. You need to always have, uh, you know, that balance within the virtues. Um, so that's a part of that whole question as well. But then the ultimate question is, well, okay, given this model and what we know about the brain, are there drugs, devices that we're already using, like ADD drugs, uh, like uh, oxytocin, the research is going on in oxytocin, that could be used systematically in the future? Um, uh, even if we didn't, even if the goal isn't to enhance human virtue, which freaks a lot of people out, if we say we're going to enhance human virtue, say, well, if you were just given access to these drugs and you were told this one will increase your self-control, this one will suppress your addiction to X, Y, and Z, this one will make you more empathetic to other people's feelings. Don't even talk about it in a moralistic sense. What will people do? They're going to be likely to want to use these in ways that enhance what we call virtues. Um, and so that's the, the positive upshot. Then the final part of the book is about the effect on our sense of self, because for me, transhumanism, it's the ethics of transhumanism around life extension and, uh, and bodily enhancement is kind of boring, actually, because uh, most people, you know, the, the arguments that they come up with about why it would be bad to live a long time are just, you know, so easy to knock around. Um, but when you get to the questions of, well, if I give you a drug that actually changed your memories, you know, and you decided that you were going to erase every negative memory that you have, 
what effect would that have on our lives? You know, what effect would it have on our sense of identity, on our moral, you know, for me, remembering some of the terrible things that I've done by accident and sometimes intentionally to people is a part of my own moral character today. And if I was to systematically erase those memories, I don't think it would have a positive effect on my moral character. On the other hand, I think people should have a right to control their own brains. So, so where do you go with that? So those are some really interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I personally wouldn't give up my negative memories because, in fact, this is how we learn most of the time, I think. Uh, you know, you have to make a mistake, and, and sometimes you, you pay for it, and, and this is how this is part of the learning process, I think. And, and especially when it comes to, to moral or, or ethical sort of uh, progress that you can make individually and, and grow personally as a, as a positive character— if you remove that possibility, how do you ever grow? How do you ever make progress? I, 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 that for, on, the, on the other hand, as you mentioned, people should have freedom to change their brain the way they see fit. Right. So it's a, it's a serious dilemma here, yes. Right. Well, I think that this gets to, uh, you know, I, I have a more nuanced view of drug de- decriminalization than I used to. I used to just think, legalize them, the consequences of drug criminalization are too great. Mm-hmm. I think we need a more nuanced view because we do have a legitimate need and right to have um, to encourage uh, our fellow human beings to live fulfilling lives. Mm-hmm. And so if we, we look on other people who are addicted to crack or heroin um, or what's coming down the pike, which will be worse than crack and heroin, more addictive, more uh, fundamentally personality changing. Um, uh, if we don't say, look, I think this is a problem and we need to do what we can to help you uh, without going to the point of saying we're going to lock you up in prison or we're going to you know, kill you or whatever. Uh, but you know, what, what, what can we what lines can we go up to to create moral uh, sanction and social support and public health support for people so that they move their lives in positive directions as opposed to falling into these sand traps? But here's my, my thing with this uh, uh, here. Uh, I think in this case, we're talking more about sort of a uh, physiological enhancement, not so much about a moral one, because I think there's a clearly physiological dependency that we're talking about. It's not really psychological. It's not really moral. I mean, many of those people morally may hate drugs and may want to stop doing them, but it's just physiologically they're entirely dependent on that. Well, I think that this is a longstanding debate in sociology about the uh, medicalization, um, how which... Uh, social agencies or institutions get to define and control social problems. So it used to be that alcohol was considered purely a moral problem. And then in the 20th century, uh, well, uh, you know, it went b- before the 20th century. <laughs> sure, sure, yes. If, you, if, you, if someone was a drunkard, it was just considered their moral failing. It wasn't considered yes. a disease. And then in the 20th century, we created this notion that there was a disease of alcoholism and you could suffer from that. And it took away some of the moral sanction uh, from alcoholism. Um, and, and I think the next step would be that if we come up with, you know, as we already do have uh, buprenorphine and some of these other drugs that, um, that make it easier for people to give up alcohol dependence, um, if we can fix the brain of people who are chemically dependent, um, then you really would have a fully medicalized context and say, well, you, you don't have a moral failing. You have the problem of alcohol or chemical dependence, and you need to go and take this particular drug, and it'll fix your brain. Um, and that's progress. 
But it doesn't take away from the fact that being at one of the pro reasons why we don't want to be alcohol dependent or chemically dependent is that it leads to us doing things to ourselves and to other people that are in fact moral, have moral consequences. We drunk, drive drunk and kill people. We uh, don't pick up our kids from school and they, you know, and they fall in a ditch or whatever. Um, and so when we have a sense of moral obligation and our life has to go in a certain direction, the reason why chemical dependence is a problem is because it gets in the way of those things. Mm -hmm. Let me uh, try to make our conversation here a little bit clearer because we've been mentioning the term transhumanism quite many times by now. So just briefly, what's your definition of transhumanism so that we're very explicit and clear on what you mean by it? Well, for me, transhumanism is when enlightenment values, which, will, which I'll elaborate on briefly, but enlightenment values met the ancient aspirations of human beings to um, uh, be wiser, live longer, be healthier. We, we have for thousands of years, for all of recorded history, probably since we became symbolic thinkers, imagined what it would be like if our social relations and our bodies could be improved. So the, the, the aspiration of transhumanism is ancient. The notion that the way to achieve it was through science, reason, technology, as opposed to prayer, meditation, fasting, herbs, you know, whatever. <laughs> Um, uh, is a relatively recent one. It started about 300, 400 years ago. Uh, Francis, uh, uh, the Bacon, uh, New Atlantis, and uh, you know the Enlightenment thinkers around France in the late 18th century. So um, I've been very much uh, going back to uh, study those thinkers and see people like Diderot and Condorcet and their influence. The, the, you know, when this idea be first began to develop that we could radically transform human nature and, and human existence with reason and technology, the, all of our transhumanist visions were implicit there. Artificial intelligence, space exploration, everything was implicit. Um, then you you go into the 19th century and it begins to become more complicated with uh, the association of, of reason and progress with uh, the left and with the workers' movement and, and so forth. Um, things get a lot more complicated after that. But basically, transhumanism is a modern reflection of that early uh, Enlightenment complexity and, and all of its political complexity from the – as a you know, I think that the anarcho-capitalists uh, are – children of that complexity as are uh, those of us on the left. But what we share in common is this optimism that um, humans through reason, through our own exercise of reason and the application of that reason through science and technology could radically improve our human nature. So let me stop you right here then and ask you, is that optimism a rational feature? Uh, is it rational? Probably not. I mean, the research on optimism right now tends to suggest that we are overly optimistic and that that has certain Darwinian uh, you know, natural selection consequences, that it, it's better to be overly optimistic than to be cold and rational all the time. Uh, when, when, in fact, people who are depressive tend to be more rational about some of the aspects of their lives than those who are ordinarily happy. Um, and so, no, I don't think it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think it's complicated. <laughs> okay, so um, let me move on to another cotangent topic here um, and see how does the progress or development of artificial intelligence uh, 
of artificial intelligence impact on transhumanism? Well, one of the concerns that we've had, or I in particular, but many of us, um, there are differences within the IAT. George Dvorsky is more singularitarian than I am. Um, but uh, others of us are less than I am. Um, I share with uh, singularity advocates the notion that um, human consciousness is material, uh, that we're on a trajectory of technological innovation that will mean that within this century, whatever goes on in human consciousness will be modelable in non-biological media. Um, and that therefore um, we will boot up something that will you know, have the characteristics of human consciousness within this century. Um, I go along that far. I, I don't go along to the inevitability of a hard takeoff um, a, as a scenario because I think we look around, there are all kinds of uh, um, organisms and uh, uh, systems of energy complexity in the, in the world that um, achieve you know, a, a level of complexity and, and just stay there, right? And so one of the concerns that I've had about singularitarianism, and this is also because I'm a sociologist and, a, and interested in religion, is that I think a lot of the ways that singularitarians have been thinking about artificial intelligence is shaped by their Christian millennialist or kind of pan-cultural millennialist past, that they think it's going to be God out of a box or apocalypse or Terminator or what, you know, what, whatever visions they bring to it. And what's much more uh, complicated and necessary, I think, in this arena is to think about what, what if artificial intelligence emerges and it's just like the proliferation of, of electronic rats in the, in the infrastructure. You know, they're gnawing, <laughs> they're gnawing on all the infrastructure. They're not really intelligent. They're not coordinated, but they're a hell of a nuisance. They spread diseases. They, they erode, uh, you know, what we're trying to do. Uh, what if they're like the proliferation of rabid dogs or, you know, fleas or something or, or all of the above um, and not got out of a box? Um, so for me, I think it's been extremely important for people who uh, share certain presumptions about the evolution of e-life and uh, of a-life uh, of artificial intelligence to connect to the cybersecurity communities the, in the nonprofit, the, pro the commercial and the military and governmental spheres and say, look, you're concerned about uh, Russian terrorists releasing uh, semi-alive malware that will coordinate AI attacks against, um, uh, you know, against Symantec when it tries to get rid of it, which has already happened. Right? You know, the ro uh, robots out there have already done that. Um, we're telling you that in five and ten years, it's going to be even worse, and it's going to be able to do this, this, and this. You need to start building a resilient global information infrastructure that is resistant to these kinds of attacks. I think that there's an audience for that. But because if you, if, all, if you think that the governments can never do anything right, because you're a libertarian to begin with, or you think because uh, nobody's as smart as me sitting around in my pajamas in San Francisco talking about friendly AI, and therefore no one could possibly understand the, the, what needs to be done except me and my 10 closest buddies, and the only thing that you can do to, to prevent apocalypse in the future is give me a bunch of money so that I can work on this problem in my pajamas, um, well, that's not terribly useful either, and if you think that that's the case because 
AI, as soon as it emerges, is going to jump out of a box and control everything in the universe, and the, there's no steps in between, that's not terribly useful either. So I think there's a lot of biases, cultural, political, um, mytho mythological biases that get in the way of singularitarians thinking rationally about the challenges and benefits of artificial intelligence. Let me just mention one more. For 200 years, we've been talking about the possibility that we could eliminate uh, human labor uh, and human toil. And I think we're on the cusp of being able to do that through artificial intelligence and robotics. And when you talk to people at Singularity University, they say, yeah, there may be this gap of 15 years between the elimination of all necessary human labor and then when we figure out how to make these magic nano boxes that will give everybody everything that they want. This gap of 15 years, is that the gap of 15 years in which everyone starves to death? Because we don't figure out what to do when people start losing their jobs at an accelerating rate in this coming automated economy and how we're going to feed everybody, which is basic income guarantee and, and other kinds of societal reforms, or you think that you're going to solve all the problems by creating floating uh, garbage scows out in the Pacific and that everyone's going to be able to migrate to those and, and live off of uh, you know, codfish or something, then you know, you're not really dealing with the reality of what's coming. Yeah, by the way, the, the codfish... Uh uh, stockpile has been exhausted off the, <laughs> yeah. the yeah, great banks of Canada. So uh, codfish wouldn't be the the solution. But right. let me ask you this. Um, so you think that there may be a high risk of technological unemployment there, uh, and eventually we might have to reconsider our social contract. Do you think that we're running the risk that this sort of renegotiation of such a contract can happen through large social upheaval or maybe even a revolution? Because uh, that's usually what happens when you have large numbers of the population that are unable to feed themselves. Uh, this is a very politically and socially explosive situation, ripe for a revolution. <laughs> well, I think we do face uh, the possibility of... of many countries undergoing revolutionary reform. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Greece right now, um, you know, Greece brought a lot of problems on itself through poor governmental management. But in the broader context, we um, are having a debate around austerity, entitlement, um, e the economic futures of industrialized societies. And thank goodness that um, that debate had moved one inch forward here in the United States um, because we didn't adopt the the path of austerity the way that we could have. Although we may uh, come this come December, we'll have to see. Um, but, you know, it, the, the further we go in the austerity direction, the further we go towards widespread technological unemployment, neo-feudalism, uh, a, a shrinking number of people with worthwhile jobs and a growing number of immiserated poor. The direction that we have to go in is to say, look, uh, uh, food, shelter, clothing, these are uh, something that we want to guarantee access for everyone. We have to figure out how no matter what happens with the labor market, no matter what happens with the stock markets, how we uh, redistribute and, and ensure that everyone has access to those basic things. Um, and, and so that basic income guarantee has to be on the table. It's not yet. It's, it's more on the table in the developing world. There's experiments with basic income in places like South Africa, experiments in, uh, in Brazil. But uh, Europe, 
just beginning of the discussion, and it's so far off the table still in the United States that <laughs> people just look at you cross-eyed when you talk about it. Mm -hmm. So it seems that, like me, you're a Keynesian. You think that uh, government spending can uh, actually uh, help us pull through uh, periods of recession like this. Well, this is one of the things about you know this our the current economic th debate that we have. You know, if you believe that your welfare is tied to the the, the fortunes of your company or your, the stocks that you own, and then you look at social policy and you think, well, if we eliminate the welfare state. Uh, what effects that going to have on the wealth profits of my company or or this my stock portfolio versus making sure that there's a wide distribution of wealth and income in in my society uh, even if that requires government employment or redistributive taxes um, the the rational thing for capitalists has always been to pursue these Keynesian policies and redistributionist policies because it is in general good for capitalism to have those policies in place. So, that, but, the, but capitalists aren't rational that way. I mean, capitalists can be as irrational as the super uh, PAC funders who were backing Santorum. You know, they could care more about um, stopping birth control than they can about the future of capitalism. And, um, and so what the question is, is can you create institutions on the right, on the, in the capitalist corporate class that are farsighted enough to get them to move in the direction of supporting institutions like, you know, trade unions were the, the same. I mean, trade unions uh, were perceived as a huge threat, but in the end, after much bloodshed, trade unions established labor peace in a, in a, a period of cooperative cooperation between labor and capital that uh, created prosperity for 40 years. And then the capitalists decided they didn't like them anymore and, and they're back on the warpath against them. So. You know, you, it's a question of rational capitalism versus irrational capitalism. I think rational capitalism hopefully will win. <laughs> I hope so, too. Um, so you've already noted that there are some sort of very strong religious uh, uh, similarities between the technological singularity and or singularitarianism, if I could put it this way, uh, and, and the, the major Judeo-Christian uh, ideas... Uh, behind religion. Um, Jaron Lanier calls the singularity rupture for nerds or rupture religion for geeks and so on. Would you care to, to go that far or would you stop short of that qualification? Um, well, I have in particular focused on the millennialist and apocalyptic dimensions of, of the thought. Um, I also talk about messianic versions of, of uh, singularitarianism. I mean, I consider some of the magical solutions or magical thinking about ways to stop apocalyptic outcomes of AI and ensure good outcomes to be kind of messianic thinking. Um, but yeah, so I do think that there's enormous numbers of, simula uh, of similarities. Now, the difference between me and people who, who use the term rapture of the nerds is that many of those people uh, think that they're rationalists and secularists, and they're ne they've never been influenced by any of these irrational <laughs> means. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case. And if it is, well, more this sorry for you, because I find these mythopoetic memes and my, my, my saturation in them and my recognition of them and my use of them in my own work to be enriching. You know, I don't think that um, uh, 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 the apocalyptic meme is necessarily 
bad. It's just that if you don't recognize that it's affecting your risk assessment, your approach to political strategy, your pro approach to risk mitigation strategies, um, then you're, you're going to be crippled by that. So you have to recognize it. You have to own up to it in the first place. So we need a confession. We need to get all the singularitarians together, and they need to st stand up and say, I am a singularitarian and a millennialist, and I recognize that this has made a profound problem in me. You know, look at the Republican Party. The Republican Party, because they were not a fact-based party in this last uh, round of elections and, and were a mythology-based party, they had convinced themselves that Romney was going to win in a landslide election, and they just got themselves crushed. And that now they're trying to figure out why. Well, it's because you're not a reality-based party. You know, if you, if you would just pay more attention to reality, you'd get farther. So again, with the singularitarians, I think, you know, you can make... I don't think that the idea of a hard takeoff is completely out of the question. I think there is a very small risk. But if 99% of the possibility is a very slow takeoff with, with cyber rats and widespread unemployment as the major outcomes, as opposed to hard takeoff and us all being turned into carbon nanotubes, uh -huh. um, then we need to give some attention to these other problems. And the reason that they don't is that they're just totally overwhelmed by their millennialism. So, so let's say we are in, in the scenario of a slow takeoff. How likely do you think it is that we are going to survive the eventual unfolding of that singularity? Well, not to be semantic, but the question is, who's we, white man? Um, you know, <laughs> there, it there was a loaded question. Uh, yeah. Um, there's going to be some people who uh, don't feel like the things and beings that survive are legitimate successors to the human race. This gets back to Nick Bostrom's very interesting thinking around existential risk. What, is an, what does it really mean for the human race to be extinguished if we were all to have our fundamental goal structures altered so that all we wanted to do was you know, serve the, the master bot would the human race have really survived? And I don't think so. Um, on the other hand, I don't think that, uh, you know, that we should survive in our current form, that that, that's, that, that should be a, a goal at any rate. Um, so uh, there's going to be some profound philosophical and identity questions around all that. I, what I hope happens and what I think is possible if we struggle for it is that we create a transhuman civilization in which there are uh, uploaded anim uh, 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 upgraded animals, enhanced animals who can participate in that society, humans of many, many varieties, uh, or organic, inorganic, enhanced, unenhanced, um, in which there are very carefully controlled and introduced uh, machine minds. And I think that the, the biggest question and problem I see around the machine minds participating in a transhuman culture is that, and, and the, uh, I give SIAI credit for um, emphasizing this point in their own work, the realm of possibilities uh, around what kinds of machine minds there could be is so much larger than the realm of possibilities of, of the biological, you know, you, you enhance a chimp. We, we only diverged from chimps a couple million years ago. So you enhance a chimp, it may throw poo instead of having a rational argument, but it's not like it, it's going to, its motivations are going to be so totally different that we can't understand where it's coming from. Now you go back to dolphins and you see, oh, already it's maybe really difficult for dolphins to participate and, and for us to understand what the hell's going on with them. Um, but then you introduce a machine mind and it, 
it might have everything about human consciousness except no sense of self, or it might have everything about human consciousness except no sense of, uh, of memory. Or, you know, you could take away and modify elements in machine minds that you can't So, uh, for human beings. So I think uh, yet. Um, and so I think the problem with machine minds is we have to be very careful about defining what kinds of machine minds uh, can, be, can participate as equals within the transhuman civilization. Mm -hmm. So do you think that we would inevitably go completely post-biology uh, beyond it? Or do you think that there would be some kind of a merger between, you know, cyborgization in a way, between our biology? I mean, is there any benefit to leaving anything from biology in, into that future? Well, I imagine that there will always be... Uh, people who are romantic about biological existence, although romanticism is probably going to be one of those things that we get to turn on and off in our brain. So the question is, will people just turn it off? This is one of the questions that led me to the Cyborg Buddha um, investigation. Is like, if I could <coughs> have control of eroticism, you know, I, I work on a college campus. There are lots of attractive uh, college kids here, but I'm not allowed to think about them in, in that way. So if I could come to work every day and, and just for the work environment, turn off my erotic sensibilities and then turn them back on when I get home or turn, crank them way up when I get home for, uh, you know, for my wife, um, that would be a lovely culture. But on the other hand, I would get so much done if I never turned them back on. If I just channeled them... <laughs> If I just channeled all of that into work, and I think this is, gets back to, to Nick's question, is once we have those kinds of controls, we may all make certain decisions, just willy-nilly make certain decisions about how we want to live, that we end up being a completely different civilization than we intended. Uh, at any rate, um, uh, I forget what your original question was, but I, I went off on a, a stream of consciousness. If there's any benefits to biology and leaving anything oh, from it. Benefits, well, I think, yeah... No, probably not in the end, but I think our categories of biology and post-biology are probably pretty rudimentary at this point. What, what constitutes a biological creature in the future? I mean, the, the, the medium of consciousness may be some hybrid of biology and nanotechnology that we can't even imagine yet. Mm -hmm. And then going back again to the question of moral enhancement uh, and connecting it to the issue of animal uplift, now, if you have a human being that sort of volunteers or decides to, to undergo certain kinds of changes to her brain, you know, that's one thing. But if you have an animal which is incapable to sort of take that original uh, step consciously, then uh, what's the moral or ethical problem there? Is there one? Because it seems to me that there might be a big problem there. Well, uh, people have certainly raised that objection. I try to address that in Citizen Cyborg um, when I talk about different kinds of creatures and the different obligations that we have to them uh, on the basis of their capacity to experience pleasure and pain um, or their, their uh, awareness of themselves over time uh, as conscious persons and so forth. So the argument I would basically make is that we don't have an obligation to attempt to uplift creatures that simply experience pleasure and pain. Our obligation to them is to try to minimize 
their pain and uh, enhance, perhaps enhance their pleasure. Although <laughs> the hedonism, utilitarianism question comes in there. Yeah. Um, but at le- but at least we don't have an obligation for them all to become, you know, for every rat and every flea and every cockroach to become a citizen. But at some point, if if you think that um, uh, you you accrue enough rights bearing on the basis of consciousness, well, where does that happen? And I would argue, and this is the conference that we're going to have with the uh, Non-Human Rights Project, I would argue that that begins to happen around elephants and dolphins and great apes. And so what what kinds of rights or obligations do we uh, do they have, rights do they have and obligations do we have towards them? I would argue that the kind is like we would have towards a disabled uh, person, human person, or a child, which is that they are not yet a- capable of exercising their their consent or full decision making on their own behalf. They don't understand what the concept. You know, they can't understand the questions yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but they uh, could eventually benefit, and we could get them to the point where they could understand the questions and make decisions on their own behalf. So if you have, for instance, uh, and this is a debate that we have in disability politics a lot um, uh, around enhancement, that you know, people say, well, your uh, approach to human enhancement um, is insulting to people with disabilities. You don't uh, think that people with Downs should be allowed to live. No, no, wrong. What I'm asking you is, as a parent of a Downs child, do you think you have an obligation, if I could give you a pill that would cure their Downs and allow them to grow up, have a normal life span, marry, have a, a career, and so forth, would you have an obligation to give your child that pill? And would I have an obligation to make sure that you were considered a child abuser if you didn't give your child that pill? And when we get to that question, I think most people agree that um, that we have an obligation to give that pill. Now, that pill could work just as well for a chimp and say, you know, uh, some kind of cognitive enhancement, uh, we might be able to uplift that chimp so that they could make those decisions on their own behalf and live uh, within our transhuman civilization. If you think that there's some kind of divide between our obligation to the disabled child and the obligation to the chimp, then we have to interrogate why. What is it that spe- what's important about that species line to you? Yeah. That the that the the life of the chimp is more belongs in the trees throwing poo at each other, whereas the life of the disabled child is more important somehow. Yeah, I don't wanna be a speciesist if if there is a word like that, but my intuition here would be that yes, I agree with you about the child, but about the chimp I'm not so sure. And I'm trying to interrogate myself and, and why that is the case. And I get to the conclusion that I must be a speciesist. Yeah. <laughs> You're not alone. You're certainly not alone. Yeah, but, but I, I take it you would disagree with me? Absolutely, yeah. And, and why would that be? So help me just sort of begin that path then. Well, in the first place, you have to begin to tease apart or deconstruct our notion of the human. I mean, when did humans begin? Uh, what are the boundaries of humanness? The whole point of the transhumanist movement is to um, begin to shift people away from some definition of humanness as a valorized category um, towards a, a broader notion of what's important about existence. And the rights-bearing aspect of that is that 
we are uh, advocates of a radical version of the Enlightenment, of, of investigations that began with John Locke and Descartes about uh, what does it mean to be a conscious being in the universe and what kinds of rights do we have towards other conscious beings that we recognize. So if because we that's the basic message, we have to be radically non-anthropocentric. We have to say we're, what we're about is looking for that consciousness and trying to figure out what we owe that consciousness. Um, we owe uh, some of those consciousnesses to just be left alone. But if, you, if that's what your approach is to the consciousness of your child, then you're not, <laughs> there's something wrong with you and, and something wrong with your society. And so um, if you radically deconstruct that, uh, anthropos those anthropocentric barriers, you come, I think, to these conclusions that species does not make a difference in terms of obligation. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other very interesting topic for another interview. But I think uh, we're coming towards the end of our interview today. So my last two questions are always the same. And uh, the second one is this. James, where can people go and find more about your work and sort of begin following you? Well, IET.org uh, is the place. Uh, we have a very active website. Uh, we just saw the retirement of our most recent managing director, Hank Pellisier, who had brought a very colorful, um, very sexy uh, set of topics to our table. And we have a new managing director, Chris Notero, who is a, a philosopher and a political activist, and he's going to be uh, bringing his own version of, uh, of uh, sexy, exciting topics and has already started. Um, we have an upcoming conference that's going to happen at Yale University uh, in April on the rights of non-human persons, um, uh, co-managed with uh, Steve Weiss's Non-Human Rights Project. Um, and uh, I will be at the uh, Humanity Plus meeting in San Francisco with Chris, uh, along with many, many other IET speakers and fellows uh, who will be speaking at that meeting in December of 2012. Mm, fantastic. So... Uh to bring our conversation to its end, um, I usually like to sort of finish on a strong point. So let me ask you this. James, if there is a single thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from you today, what would you like that to be? It's that I think we all need to, those of us in the futurist and transhumanist communities, we need to really interrogate um, our dismissal of public policy, of politics, um, and engage with the world because we have a lot to offer. There are a lot of uh, folks in public policy. You know, I was at a meeting in Washington, D.C. Uh, a year ago, and uh, a senior policy advisor to President Obama said that the sum total of the attention that the Obama administration to prospects uh, for Medicare and Social Security from radical longevity therapies had occurred in, in the shower while he was uh, preparing for the meeting that morning. Um, and I take that seriously. There are lots wow. of people in public policy who, who need to be thinking about um, the consequences of emerging technologies and the kind of future that we believe passionately is going to be uh, possible. And so we need to engage with that community in order to make sure that the world turns out uh, close to, even close to the way that we want it to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when I hear stories like that, you know, I'm not surprised on the one hand. On the other hand, I don't know if I should laugh or if I should cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Oh. Well, uh, Dr. James Hughes, 
Thank you very much for being with us on Singularity One-on-One -on -one today. It's been my pleasure. Anytime. Thank you.